Alright, we're going through the Psalms this quarter, and uh, tonight we're looking at Psalm 32. And before we open up and read from it, just a quick reminder again of kind of why we're doing the Psalms. Um, you just got to be in the Psalms. That's, that's the reason why, and what I mean is this, like, it's the place where we get to process how we feel. Uh, not just how we think, but we get to take uh, the truths of Scripture and walk through them emotionally. And what's interesting about Psalm 32 uh, is that it walks us through two emotions together uh, that you might not think go hand in hand, but actually David links them together inextricably. Um, And it's actually shame and joy, or guilt and joy. And and David's own grappling with these things in his own life, we're actually given a picture of how these conflicting emotions uh, relate to each other and how... um, Yeah, how they're tied together. So, hear now from the Word of God. This is one of David's songs. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant David and the words he has for us. And I pray as we consider that you would teach us, dear God. This involves emotions. Uh, this asks us to go places in our life that we don't want to go, to consider things about who we are that we don't want to consider and we don't like and we don't enjoy. But in here you show us that there's joy mixed with going to those places. So I pray, dear God, that your word would work healing in our hearts by the power of your spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to begin tonight with a real simple, almost like childish, simplistic question. And when I ask it, uh, your first instinct is might be to feel that way, but it's also one of those questions where if you ponder it for 10 seconds longer, it gets really profound. Uh, and it sound, it, it, the question is simply this, do you want to be happy? And I don't mean Joel Osteen style, get everything you want, bullcrap, we're not doing that here at RUF, um, because of course the reality is you can have a lot of stuff and be unhappy, and you can have nothing and be really happy. There's a sense of deeper human happiness that we long for. And when I ask that question, do you want to be happy? Everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, has the same answer. And the answer is not yes. The answer is, and this is what we all feel, there's nothing more I want in life than that. It's not just yes. It's My whole life is really oriented towards that yes. There's nothing more I want than that. And the reality is that, y'all, this is good. This is not selfish. You are made for joy. You are made for happiness. You are made to delight and to be delighted in. 
And so we might have a more sophisticated answer because we don't want to sound selfish and say, yes, I want to be happy. So you might offer up, you know, I want them to leave the world a better place than when I, you know, some kind of more noble answer to that question. But the reality is, even that kind of answer is the reason you're doing it is because you want to be happy. And maybe that's the path to happiness. It's okay to say, I want to be happy. This biblical word for blessed, that's what it means. That's the Hebrew word for happy. I know you want to be happy, and I know this of y'all, of students in South Carolina, with, I've experienced it because I've stared in so many eyes and been in so many conversations where you felt, I hate this addiction to pornography. I cannot be happy in it. I want to be rid of it so I can be happy. And you feel that grief. And you feel that longing to be happy again, right? I've been in conversations with y'all, with students in South Carolina, where you express deeply and powerfully from really deep within who you are, I just want to have somebody. I want a boy, I want a girl to notice me. And what that is, is you saying, I want to be happy. And that is right and it's good. Um, I've been in conversations where you feel, my personal history within my family and my family's history, I... I wish it wasn't that way and I want it to be fixed. Now that's the longing to be happy. And that's right and that's good. Uh, and the reality is all of that indicates the fact the, the, the fact that you are made actually for happiness. You are biblically, Christianly made for happiness. And the problem is, is happiness is hard to come back. Because something's broken. And this is the hard part about this psalm that we'll push back against naturally. Um, this is the most terrifying reality in this psalm. And it's this. The least popular doctrine in Christianity is the most important first step to, path in, uh, to happiness. The least popular doctrine in Christianity is the most important and first step into happiness. Uh, the least popular is offensive. We want to explain it away. We want to justify it. We want to hide it. We want to ignore it. We want to numb ourselves to it. We want to say... I'm going to say it's fascist. That's what I always like to call anything I don't like. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. It's fascist if I don't like it. Pepsi is fascist, whatever. Um, it's narrow-minded. It's cultural imperialistic. It's oppressive. It's soul-crushing. We all want to say this one doctrine. It can't be true. And what this psalm is teaching us is this one doctrine that everybody hates. Christian, skeptic, whatever, is actually the first and foremost before even your doctrine of Jesus and the cross, this is the first doctrine that you have to take in the center of who you are in order to be happy. And this doctrine is the doctrine of sin, right? Least cool doctrine of all of them. The path to blessedness, the path to happiness, begins with a robust, it means powerful, terrifying, soul-searching doctrine of sin. And we want to circumvent that process. We don't want the path to happiness to be through the valley of the doctrine, through the valley of the shadow of sin and death, right? We're dying to believe we can circumvent the path to happiness, that it can go around dealing with that issue of sin because we don't want to deal with the shame and the guilt that it brings. And that's why the first point tonight is we kind of figure out how, how has David moved to joy in this psalm? Where does Christian joy come from? Where does happiness come from? And the first thing he shows us is this. 
is that it actually comes with grappling deeply with a very searching. What I mean by searching is a doctrine of sin that goes deep down into who you are and diagnoses you in all the places you didn't think it could or should diagnose you. A deep searching doctrine of sin. The first thing in moving towards joy and blessedness and happiness in life is a doctrine of sin. And we see this because in these first two verses, he gives us four different words for sin. That repetition. It's good poetry, and it's also good Hebrew poetry. It's good poetry because he's giving us different facets of sin, right? By using four different words. It's good Hebrew poetry because he's repeating himself over and over again, and repetition is a way of saying, this is central, this is big, this is one of my main focuses. And so he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. We get these four words, these four different facets of what sin is. And so it's, it's worthwhile to go through them, right? And the first one, transgression, the Hebrew word there means a sense of, it means rebellion. Just straight up, willful, looking God in the eye, looking at His law, looking at His design for human flourishing and saying, I'm not going there with you on that one. Uh, the words rebellion is strong, right? We don't like it. It smacks of like the kind of Christianity we find distasteful in this country uh, to say that people are rebellious. Um, and so we like using softer words. And the softer words are appropriate times. Struggling, brokenness. Yeah, those are right and good words we should use when we talk about sin. But sometimes we need to call sin what it is. This word transgression means rebellion. Uh, and this is not something that's simply true of, quote unquote, the worst offenders, right? Whoever that is. Uh, It's true of all of us. Uh, What workaholism is, is, Lord, when you said we should rest, you lied. That's what workaholism is. It is straight up rebellion. Right? What greed is, is, Jesus, when you said stuff can't make you happy, you lied. It's, It's rebellion. Right? Sin is a posture of hostility towards God. We're set against Him. It is in any moment in anything that we encounter in God's law when He says, when, when it comes up and it comes down to, all right, I'm going to see there, I have to choose between X, right, whatever it is. I have to choose God on this. It's anything in which you choose X, right? And if that offends you, A, that's probably what it's supposed to do. But B, I'll make this point. If you're sitting in here, you're like, man, that's the kind of language about sin I really don't like, Right? Uh, if you never bump up against God, then whatever you think is God is not God. Here's what I mean by this. If you're trying to do business and you're wondering about this deity, about the God of the Bible, and, and the God you meet is always accommodating His ethics and His design for human flourishing according to whatever you want to do, guess what? It's not God that you're doing business with. It's actually your own imagination of yourself. Right? If God is God, then at some point, and actually a lot of points, we're going to end up bumping up against Him. And if we never bump up against Him, if we never find that His law comes in contradiction to the things we want to do, if that never happens, that means you just imagined a deity that looks exactly like you. And you think everybody else has imagined a deity that looks exactly like them. In practice, you're actually a polytheist, right? That's offensive, and sorry if you're not saying, Brent told me I was a polytheist, but... We're rebellion. Uh, Second word comes up is our sin. This word sin 
uh, is a sense of falling short. And that's a word that I think probably makes sense really quickly here, right? Um, falling short of expectations, falling short of God's design, falling short of who we are supposed to be. You are insufficient. I am insufficient. Not just in terms of your professional or your academic development, but as a person. On the level of your personhood in its totality. And, and I kind of don't even have to explain that one, I don't think, because I think we all feel it. I am short of something I was supposed to be. And you're short of something that you were supposed to be. When we're all short of God's glory, we're not measuring up. So there's rebellion, there's falling short. The third word is iniquity. That word in Hebrew means perversion or distortion. Um, a perversion or distortion of something good. And see, here's an interesting thing. Evil is actually dependent on good. And what I mean by this is evil doesn't exist unless actually good exists first. Because evil is actually a corruption or a distortion of something once good. That's what evil is. So sin is our taking something good and distorting it. Sin is taking work, not making it a delightful activity done in service to the Lord, but rather making it the center of who we are in this life-defining, anxiety-filled race that has no rest, right? Sin is taking relationships and not delighting in serving one another and loving one another, but using friendships for our own ends so that we can get what we want out of it, kind of a parasitic approach, ready to end the relationship as soon as it becomes costly to us in terms of resources or time, right? Sin is taking wealth and success and making it the goal of our pursuits instead of a byproduct of laboring with wisdom and with kindness and love. I mean, here's anger, y'all, is a corruption of love. Anger is something good that went wrong. Because love desires the best for people. And anger is that twisted into punishing people because they're not the best for you. Right? Jealousy, y'all, is something good gone wrong. Jealousy is the corruption of hope. Hope is the longing for the world to be the way that only Jesus can make it. And jealousy is the selfish unbelief that Jesus isn't enough. Adultery is the corruption of sex. Sex is made for enjoyment and for celebrating and cementing union with one another. Adultery is the selfish act of procuring pleasure for yourself without concern for the other parties and without enjoying the union of covenant. Now, sin is a distortion. Iniquity is a distortion of something good. And then the last word we see is deceit. And this is the most deadly one of all the facets of sin. This is the most deadly one. Deceit is the thing that attempts to hide or to justify or to numb all of this. Right? So that we don't even have to deal with it. Right? You know, it's distasteful to hold doctrine of sin. The Bible has these rules that don't account for the differences among people. What you call sin, I call the human condition. We can't just say that some people are wrong and other people's aren't. Right? And if that's what we were saying, you would be right. If that was your criticism, and that's actually what the Bible was saying, you would be right. That's distasteful and it's arrogant. But that's not what the Bible is actually saying. The Bible is saying something much more offensive. It's saying, no, no, no. There aren't good people and bad people. They're just bad people. There's one type of person. And when the problem, here's the frustration and here's the problem with it all, with that conversation is in the classroom, in a metaphysical, philosophical discussion, um, 
we don't like it. We don't like the doctrine of sin. We don't like the notion that our heart is twisted, that it's bent, that it can't do anything right, that we're full of rebellion, that we've come up short, that we're twisted, and that we're trying to lie about all of it. It's so distasteful, right, in a classroom, clinical, sterile setting. But inside of life, when we're really examining our own lives, the lives of our families and the lives of our friends, we know it's true. We've got to take that, that sterile metaphysical conversation and we've got to bridge it with reality and see that this is a better descriptor of the human condition than any notion that humanity is morally neutral or morally basically good. Because when you're living life and examining that, we see all this to be true. You know, it's just, you might feel, with regard to deceit, you might feel like, I can't let these things out. And I can't do business with them because they're too much. They're too egregious. They're too often. They're too shameful. And so the only solution to dealing with them, because I can't put them on, I can, there's just no way I can put these types of things on the table. The solution then is tuck them away, to hide them, to struggle with them on my own in the hiddenness of my own private life. Denying their reality because it's too painful to do business with the shame, right? That's the deceit. It's the most dangerous one. It's the one that makes us want to hide all the others. Y'all, so here's the first point to begin to experience the joy that David is celebrating in this passage. You you always have to go through the bad news first. Here's the application for this first part. It's to say to yourself... Or actually to say of yourself to God and even to God's servants. What David says of himself, what Isaiah says of himself, what Paul says of himself, to walk into the shame of who we really are and say, Who am I? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Not I'm a sinner, but one of the one of the words that we're trying to eliminate from our household right now in parenting is the word but. It is the most difficult word for a parent. You know, I'm a sinner. If God said, written, you're a liar and you're a thief. You're angry with your children. You're ungrateful for your wife. You hate the way I've designed sex. You're jealous. You're lazy. You don't work hard. You have tons of bitterness and you don't think about other people. You don't share your time or your resources with other people. And you're prone to anger. And Britain, you make all kinds of judgment about all kinds of people all the time. You don't love your word. You don't love your neighbor. And Britain, your best moments when you worship me, your best worship is half-hearted. If he said that to me, he would be right. He is right. And pretending that stuff is not true... And y'all, I, I wrote down that list. It took me 30 seconds. I didn't even start doing work, right? That was literally... I'm just, I literally was like, I'm going to, in less than a minute, I'm going to see, what's, I'm, I'm going to see what comes to mind about what's true of me. That's before I even did the hard work. Because I'm afraid of the hard work too. And plus I had to get ready for my sermon. I was like, what, 30 seconds? But <laughs> it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard as the text confronted me and begged me to be honest. Um, and pretending that stuff's not true is not the path to happiness. In verses 3 and 4, give us that warning and, give us, and kind of tell us the condition of hiding it, Right? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up in the heat of summer. 
When God covers our sin, it's a glorious thing, and it's freeing, and there's healing, and there's health, and there's life. When we cover our sin, it's a different story, right? It's precisely in our attempts to cover our sin, to cover our guilt, and to cover our shame, to justify Him, that we experience actually the opposite of life-giving joy, right? We actually die as humans. We think, we think we're going to be more enlightened when we eradicate this kind of dated notion of sin, and the reality is, is the exact opposite occurs. When we pretend that sin doesn't exist because we can't handle the weightiness and the guilt of it, we actually become less and less human. Um, there's a social worker professor, uh, social work professor at Houston that does research. Her name is Brene Brown, and she says this. She says, there's three things that you have to know about shame. And what she does for, an ex- for a living is she researches people whose lives and families have fallen apart. She does the research into that. She says, everybody has it. We all want to numb ourselves to it. And when you numb yourself to it, you no longer have the capacity for empathy or human connection. Nobody wants to talk about shame, and the more you talk about it, or, sorry, nobody wants to talk about shame, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. We want to stop feeling it by denying the existence of sin, the denying the existence of our shortcomings. Right? And what she's saying is, when people do that, they cease to become people. They can't connect anymore. They can't have empathy anymore. She says this, you, you encounter all these feelings, but what people think, this is what she says, you want to self-select out the certain feelings in your life that you don't have, that you don't want to have. And so that's what people try to do. You, and she's saying, you can't selectively numb emotion. And what I mean by that is, here's the bad stuff, vulnerability, grief, shame, fear, disappointment. I don't want to feel these. So I want to self-select those out of my life. And you can do things to numb them. And she walks through the ways we medicate and addict and work and cover ourselves and numb ourselves to our sense of shame. And she's saying, you can do it. And when you numb those, this is what happens to the people that I've studied. They also numb their ability to have joy. They numb their ability to have gratitude. They numb their ability to have happiness. So they can't feel those anymore. And then what happens is, they get scared again because they can no longer feel. And so they actually go back to the ways that they're medicating their shame and their guilt and reinforce the cycle again. So on the other end, they actually can't feel joy even more. They're even further from gratitude. They're even further from thankfulness because they were so afraid of getting into their shame and their guilt and doing business with their inadequacy as a person. The reality is, what she's explaining is exactly what David's saying in verses 3 and 4. When you had it, You don't become more human, you become less human. We don't want to deal with the shame of who we are. And when we do, uh, and and when we don't deal with it, we stop having the ability to feel, and I love this song by the Avett Brothers, if any of y'all listen to them. It's called The Tin Man, and they sing this amazing song about, just listen to the words, it says, You can't be like me, but be happy that you can't. I see pain, but I don't feel it. I am like the old tin man. I'm as worn as a stone. I keep it steady as I can. I see pain, but I don't feel it. I am like the old tin man. I miss it. I miss it. Oh, I miss the feeling of feeling. I used to fill the sky around with happiness and joy. I had news to give the wind to keep my sails and my heart employed. I felt people around me. I felt loneliness and shame. Back then, every day was different. And now every moment is the same. 
I miss it, I miss it. Oh, I miss the feeling of feeling things. Now, some of us, I know, are in this place. And we don't know it because we can't feel anymore. And some of us are afraid we're in this place because we know we're feeling things less and less. And the reason we don't feel it is because we're afraid of, the, of dealing with the truth about our rebellion and our inadequacy and our shortcoming and our distortion and our deception. And so we've attached ourselves to anything that can numb it. And now we can't feel anything. So here's the first invitation for tonight. The invitation is to feel again. The invitation is to set aside your medication, to set aside our work and relationship, the sexuality, the volunteerism, the approval, the popularity, the resume building. My addiction is information. If I can distract myself with information at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm terrified, right? I have my iPhone next to my bed and I'm like checking Twitter at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, please somebody say something interesting because I'm afraid of being alone by myself and finding out who I am. Take sin seriously, y'all, because it's the only way you can be happy. Because that enables us and it leads us to the second point and it leads us to David's celebration, which is you can then finally take grace seriously. Because to every word about sin, he has a word about grace. He's got an answer for it every time and beyond. His words for grace are much longer and much more adequate and much more powerful. He has so much more grace to offer in the face of four words about sin. And there are a couple of things you need to know about grace at first. And the first thing is this. There's nothing you can do for it. Penance doesn't work. Penance is this. Penance is driven by guilt. I can do something to make myself a worthy candidate of God's favor, of His grace. Right? This is at work when you believe that God is wavering in His favor for you, that on some days and in some seasons you're being extra Jesus-y, right? And God really loves you on those extra Jesus-y seasons, those extra Jesus-y days, right? And then, well, then there are the days where you're not quite as Christian. And, and on those days, you're not sure what God thinks of you. That means you're relating to Him, thinking like, well, I can earn His favor. I can earn the right to His grace. And here's one thing, here, here's the question. Are you pursuing a Christian lifestyle out of guilt? Are you pursuing it out of guilt because you've seen something you should be, right? And other people, whatever it is, and you're not, and you're thinking, I'm going to let, I think that guilt is going to drive me into finally doing that like those people. And here's, what you, here's the tough reality that none of us wants to digest because we're all prone to try to be religious and be driven that way by guilt. Here's the reality. It's not kind of worthless or a little worthless. It's worthless. That kind of spiritual living is worthless. Jesus and Paul don't just feel uh, ambivalent about it. They oppose it. Guilt-driven religious life is worthless. Paul says in Colossians 2, he says, it'll actually have the appearance of self-made religion and wisdom and asceticism and all this ability to deny yourself things and it'll, it'll be so attractive but it has no power to actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. It's actually not just a little bit, not some or not a lot. It's completely worthless. Guilt-driven religious living is worthless. It's a waste of time. Be free from that. There's nothing you can do. Secondly, you need to know this about grace. Only somebody with the authority can actually give it to you. What I mean by that is this. I owe Wells Fargo money for my house on a mortgage. I'm not in like crazy debt. I'm in normal debt like everybody else. Um, Kaysen can't forgive my debt to Wells Fargo. 
Okay? Only the person who has the authority to release us from our obligations and from our debts can actually release us. I say all that to say, and I'm not going to go any further than this, forgiving yourself is crap. We're not going to have that conversation. We can talk about it later. That's not who we need forgiveness from. There's nothing you can do about it. You can only be released. You can only be released. We can only receive grace from the one who has the authority to give it. And lastly, and this is a good one, y'all, his grace is fast. And actually mean that the way it sounds. It's fast. Verse 5 is beautiful. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. And I said, and listen to the tense of these words, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Lord willing, y'all, many of y'all be parents one day. When we deal with the girls, they fight, and we talk to them, and they come up in our room, and we kind of have this spot where we talk about things. And we know what happened. Here's the annoying thing you find out when you're a parent. You actually know everything your children do. We didn't have any secrets. I thought I did. That's been dispelled. I know everything my children do and say. So does Elizabeth. Um, and so when we have them come up, we want them, to, we want them to articulate what happened here, what you did wrong, and we want them to ask for forgiveness, to seek mercy. And to see that forgiveness is to be had. And it's so hard. Again, that word but comes up a lot. The but, sissy. And it's just like, we know what you did. We know you snatched the doll from your sister. We saw it. We were there. She was being kind to you. Like, don't, get, don't make excuses. All we want from them is for them to come clean. And what happens is this. Finally, they'll stop making excuses. And they'll say, I took the doll from sissy mommy. And y'all... I forgive you, but the easiest words to say to your children, at least at this age, it could be harder later, it comes out of your mouth so fast. And a lot of times, the embrace starts before they even finish the sentence. Because all we're dying for is for them to just to come to grips with who they are so that we can then move toward them and restore the relationship and hug them. Literally, the embrace and the forgiveness has taken place before they verbally finish the the act of contrition or repentance or confession. It literally happens faster than they can finish the sentence because we're just dying to show them forgiveness, y'all. Listen to verse 5. I will, right, future tense, confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Y'all, God's grace is fast. He is eager, eager to give it. It is being shown to you before you finish verbalizing your confession, before you finish verbalizing your guilt and your shame, the things about you you don't want to verbalize. It's already being shown. He gives us a couple of words for His grace, right? The first one is forgiven. Blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven. This is the notion of being lifted up and taken away. Psalm 103 says this, He removes our transgressions so that it's as far from us as the east is from the west. It's beautiful poetry, right? That they're as far from each other as anything you can get. That your sin and you... Nowhere near each other anymore. That the burden is lifted. The guilt weighs us down. Our condition for the Lord has been lifted. Right? Whose sin is covered. You can't, you can't go to a wedding party dressed like a bum, right? You can't be in the presence of the Lord the way you are. And His response is not to reject you. His response is to give you the appropriate clothes for the setting. Literally, Isaiah 61 says, He's clothed me, with, clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. He covers us. He makes us adequate. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is a sweet one. 
our failure, our rebellion, our shortcoming, our deceit, God's not going to count it against you. Because it stands like debts on our account, right? And He releases us from those debts. Because here's the reality. Your life will have an accounting. There will be an accounting of it. My life, there will be an accounting. With the time that you've been allotted here and now, every moment you spend, there's going to be an accounting. And what Jesus, and here's, here's the frustrating thing. I'm sorry to say this. Jesus doesn't give a crap about your GPA or your startup or what med school you get in. That's not what He's counting. The accounting will be along these lines. He will, the question will be, did you love God and love your neighbor? That's how your life will be measured. And if you're like me, you're terrified of that moment. David is saying, this is grace. The grace is that in the final accounting, he will not record your failure. You, your failure will be expunged from the record. He won't see it. It will not be accounted to you. Lastly, in whose spirit there is no deceit, he gives us a spirit of honesty, right? We're prone to deceit. The, the list of the words of God's grace ends with this one, with this movement towards an honest spirit. Grace produces an honest spirit, y'all, because when you get grace, you realize that there's nothing worth hiding. Like, why would you hide anything if his grace is this expansive? Why would you justify anything? Why would you deny anything when there's grace, when there's forgiveness, when there's covering, when there's freedom? Why would you not take everything to the Lord? He's got words of grace for us over and over again. In verse 6 and 7, they do give us, this is a sub-point, but it's worth mentioning, they give us a sense of urgency, and that's appropriate, and it's okay to talk about let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because in the rush of great waters, they might not reach him. The rush of great waters is this image of God's judgment. It reminds us of the story of Noah, right? And part of what he's saying is there's an urgency to this call, to turn back to the Lord. And we could, talk, we could spend time talking about how fragile life is. Uh, but, but I think it's enough to say this. Wouldn't it be foolish to put off something as glorious as forgiveness until tomorrow, regardless of the amount of time you have left. Why would you wait? Right? Verse 7 speaks to the fact that the blessing of forgiveness, it doesn't come at the end of life. It also comes in here and now. The blessing of forgiveness, we don't just experience the goodness of it at the end of life. It comes here and now. God is a hiding place now. God preserves you in trouble now. I love this. God surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. God wants to make a regular practice of shouting your deliverance to you. Why would you wait to hear those shouts? I didn't say this at the beginning. I should have. This psalm is written by David later in his life of faith. This is not a psalm. This is a psalm, yes, you might meet Jesus in for the first time. You can come to faith in. But y'all, this is a psalm to be sung by believers. This is a regular practice for us. To stop covering and to hold out who we are. And to hear the course, the regular practice. God wants to surround you with shouts of your deliverance. How good is that? Verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. 
Here's what he's saying. Have the humility to be taught, right? It's an admonition to stop going halfway in our confession, right? To only bring the stuff that we can handle to the Lord because that's the only stuff where we can kind of can be courageous enough to speak, to give voice to, to give thought to. He's saying, listen, there's a hard way and an easy way. And the hard way is bitter and painful. The image is that, right, of a stubborn mule or a stubborn horse that could either follow his master delightfully or the master can do the more painful work of inflicting pain in your life so that you'll follow him. Here's the good news and the frustrating news. God's willing to bring pain in our life so that we'll turn to him. But the news is, you know, you could just turn to him. So, you know, the key to happiness. If you want to be happy, the first thing we have to do, Christian, non-Christian light is ask the Lord to do a deeper and more searching inventory of who we are, and we've got to stop denying the staggering and disconcerting results we find. That's the key to happiness. The key to happiness is this, is, is to resist the urge to make excuses, to deny or to justify the you that you are but don't want to be. You know, the key to happiness then is to hear the judge's verdict when you bring all of it to him. Because he does what our consciences can never do, no matter how much we coach them up to. He does what our self-justification can never do. Because we don't need an internalized excuse or rationale for why we act this way. We need to hear the Lord's words to anybody who comes honestly about their sin and holds it up to him and says, is there grace? Is there forgiveness? Can you cover? Can you wipe away this? And y'all, there is no greater, deeper, more powerful joy even happiness than being fully, deeply, even scandalously known and exposed and being forgiven. I'll conclude with a scene from a, a TV show you'll all need to watch starting tomorrow. If you haven't already, Friday Night Lights. It's amazing. Uh, you know, there's the sacraments, there's Bible, there's preaching of the Word. If there's a second order of things you now need to be involved in in the Christian life, it's probably in that order of things, you know, like fellowship and watching Friday Night Lights. Um, but there's a great scene at the end of season four, and what you need to know is there are two brothers, Tim and Billy Riggins, and they're both immature, they both grew up without a father, uh, but they're deeply loyal to each other. And Billy's trying to start a business because he's married now, and, uh, and he has a kid on the way, and he has just all this insecurity, and he doesn't know what to do. And so what he does is he starts stripping stolen cars for extra money because he can't pay the medical bills. And uh, he hides it from his brother, Tim. And then, it's so funny, I don't, I'm not a crier. Like, I wish that I was. I'm even slightly embarrassed that I'm not. I'm not a crier. I cried in Rudy, and I cried in three episodes of Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Nothing else in my life. I even like tried to cry when our children were born because I felt guilty for not. And yes, they mean more to me than Friday Night Lights, but for whatever reason, Friday Night Lights gets to me. And I watched this scene this afternoon, and I was like, crap, I'm getting teary while watching Friday Night Lights, and I'm about to describe a scene in a cheesy sitcom on a major network, and I'm going to cry in a large group of a TV scene. It's terrible. Anyways. Billy started this illegal thing. Tim's seen him. Lost the power of the moment right there, right? Um, and at the, at the end of season four, the police come for him. And, it, and it's Billy's fault. It's Billy's plan. It's Billy's program. Uh, 
and Tim sees Billy struggling. Tim sees that Billy can't take care of his family, and he's about to go to jail for five years. And so Tim comes to him. This is before the police had pressed charges, and this is what Tim says to him. And it's amazing. Y'all should watch the TV show, not for, for this, but a lot of the reasons. He goes, this is what he says to him. He says, Tim, who didn't do anything, he says, I did it. I did it all. You didn't do anything. When we closed the shop during the day, I came back at night and reopened it, and you didn't know it was happening. I stripped the cars. I took the money. This is my decision. This is what I've decided, and this is what's going to happen. You're my brother. And Tim goes to jail. And the season ends. There's n- that's what happens. He suffers the consequences for what Billy did. If you want to know, how can I really be happy? Why does it take the confession of sin? Why does it take embracing that sin? Is be- so that you can finally hold it out and hear what Jesus has to say when you hold it before him. You say, this is me, because this is what he says to my short list that I came up with in 30 seconds, to my longer list that I could find in a minute and a half, to your longer list. This is what he's willing to say. He's willing to say, I did that. You know, Jesus gets punished because he says, I did that, I did it all. Jesus says, I'm the angry father. I'm the distant husband. I'm the ungrateful son. I'm the bitter pastor. I'm the liar and I'm the cheat. I'm the sexually jacked up guy. You didn't do anything. That's what Jesus says to me. That's what Jesus says to you. And he goes to the cross in our place. Y'all, there's no, there's no other way to joy. There is only joy in the confession of sin, spilling out your heart, all of it before him, and saying, this is who I am, I can't bear this, is their hope. And he picks it up, and this is what he says, I did this. I did it all. You didn't do anything. Y'all, that's joy. Let's pray.